0: If you'll open your Bibles this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Hal Lindsey is a name you may not be very familiar with, but in the 70s, uh, he was something of a rock star among evangelical Christianity. His book, entitled The Late Great Planet Earth, was the best-selling nonfiction book of the decade. I think Time Magazine may have named him author of the decade. And in that book, "The Late Great Planet Earth," how Lindsay tapped into a, to a reservoir among evangelical Christianity that's that very, very interested in the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is an insatiable interest among a lot of Christian people. And in that book, "The Late Great Planet Earth," how Lindsay lays out in, uh, in the nomenclature of the '70s exactly the way he thought that the end times would unfold. Uh, I think he was genuine. I think he's sincere and, 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 a, and a believer with no duplicity or motives in, in what he wrote, but he was absolutely wrong in almost everything that he wrote. And time has proven him to, to be wrong. Uh, but he did reveal that among the people of God, there is this longing to know what are the final days of human history going to be like So, there's that one wing of evangelicalism, one wing of conservative Christianity that really wants to know. There's the other side of evangelical conservative Christianity that says it's so confusing. The book of Revelation is so disturbing. It's so difficult to discern what actually the image is and and what John means by what he says that they're afraid to even venture there. Uh, They're afraid to give any considerable time to studying it because they're afraid, well, if Christians, strong Christians, mature Christians, leading Christians are so divided on what it means, well, how can I, just an average Bible-believing, God-honoring, Christ-seeking believer, ever fully grasp what it means? And the truth of the matter is, these two extremes are where a lot of people fall, but the Bible does want us to understand what it teaches. God wants us to understand what He teaches us in the Bible about the second coming. We're studying the book of 1 Thessalonians, if you're a guest with us, and, and Paul is writing to relatively young Christians. These are relatively new believers. Paul led them to faith in Christ Paul discipled them for a very brief period of time, and then Paul had to flee the city of Thessalonica for his life. And so he's writing them from the city of Corinth, about A.D. 50-51, and he's dealing with issues that they're dealing with. Uh, Most of them were saved out of paganism. Most of them worshiped the gods of the Greek pantheon. So when they came to faith in Christ, they, they needed instruction on every level. Uh, from the gospel to morality and to everything in between, and they were having struggles about the second coming. There were issues that, that Paul had not had time to teach them about. In fact, last week we looked at the issue of grief. Chapter 4, 13 through 18, one of the most important passages in the Bible for people who have lost loved ones who have died How do we grieve, but not grieve like those who have no hope? And why do we grieve as those who have hope? How is it that the tears that we cry can be saturated in genuine, authentic Christian hope? And so Paul wrote those words because there was a need in that congregation. Well, the same is true in chapter 5, 1 through 11. There's some consternation, some fear, some misunderstanding. What if I'm not ready when Jesus comes back? What if I'm not ready when the day of the Lord comes? What's going to happen to me? How can I get ready? Do I need to know the day and the hour? What's the best way for me to prepare for the day of the Lord? Well, let me begin reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. I'll read all the way through verse 11, and then we'll we'll see what the Apostle Paul says. Said to the church at Thessalonica, and we'll see what the Spirit of God says to us today. Chapter five, verse one. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day will overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. Uh, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and a helmet of, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with them. With him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. Well, that's what Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica almost 2,000 years ago. And let's see what the Spirit of God is saying to us today as 21st century Christians. The first thing I want you to know is that nobody knows when Jesus will return, nobody knows the day and the hour except God the Father. So, the Thessalonians are wondering, okay, if if I'm going to be ready when Jesus comes, if I'm going to be prepared when Jesus arrives, what time is it going to be? What's going to be the day? What's going to be the hour? When am I going to know so that I can make sure I'm absolutely ready and I'm confident that when He comes, I'm not going to be caught off guard or I'm not going to be unprepared? But in the first two verses, Paul says that nobody knows the day or the hour, that he's going to come like a thief in the night. That's exactly what Jesus taught. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. And then this is really striking. Nor the Son, but the Father alone. So people have have gotten out their clocks, and they've gotten out their charts, and they've gotten out their graphs. Uh, but Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, the angels don't know, He doesn't know. Now, that's a difficult issue in and of itself, but that's another another thought for another message. Uh, but the point is the Father does know, and He's keeping that secret close to Himself. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 42 Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Acts chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. So when, it, so when they got together, they were asking him, saying, "'Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel?' He said to them, "'It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority.'" One final verse, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The day the Lord will come will be like a thief. And so, spending our time trying to figure out, well, what month will it be? What year will it be? What day will it be? Uh, That is wasted energy and wasted time. He's going to come like a thief in the night. And a thief comes when people least expect it. When a, A thief comes when people least anticipate him. Coming. They don't come in broad daylight. They don't knock on the door and come in while we're watching the TV, not typically. And they come in after we've gone to bed, when we're on a vacation, when we forget, when we forget to, uh, to turn on the alarm system. Uh, they come when we least expect it. So it is a waste of energy, a waste of time. It's not helpful at all to scour the pages of Scripture, trying to put various passages together to determine the day and the hour that Jesus will return. The second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus' coming is inevitable and inescapable. Although we don't know the day and the hour, He's coming. His coming is inevitable. And for those outside of Christ, it is inescapable. Listen to verse three again. While they are saying, while the non-Christians are saying peace and safety, they're saying things they could not be any better. My portfolio and 401k is growing and developing. It's not today, but it's growing and maturing and developing, and it is phenomenally great. Uh, The sky is blue and life is good. They're saying peace and safety. They're saying life couldn't get any better than it is right now. Peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. He uses two similes to describe the second coming, one like a thief in the night and the other like a woman in labor. Uh, Both of these communicate the idea of suddenness. A thief comes suddenly. A thief comes unexpectedly. Well, in some sense, labor pains are like that. That is, they're not completely unexpected, but you may be, a, a lady may be walking around the house washing the dishes and all of a sudden, she begins to enter into labor. It's, it's sudden because one moment she is not in labor, the next moment she is in labor, but it's not completely unexpected. So, the thief in the night, it is sudden and unexpected. Uh, the issue uh, or the illustration, the simile, uh, like a woman in labor, it, it's sudden and inevitable. That is, all things being as they should be, in a pregnancy, the woman is going to enter into labor. It is inevitable. When we had… before we had Lydia, out of deference to my wife, we went through all kinds of Lamaze classes. We did the kinds of things that make me a little bit queasy. We watched the kinds of films in these Lamaze classes that make me a little bit weak in the knees but I did it. I did it out of love for my wife. I did it out of the thought that we had a daughter coming. So we get into the, into the labor room, and Jay begins to enter into rather intense labor. So I sit down beside her, and I said, all right, sweetheart, uh, let's begin to breathe like they taught us in class. I, I no sooner said that than she said to me, please shut up. And I said, uh, sweetheart, we went through the classes. You know, this is what you wanted to do. Let's just, let's just try. And she says, let me just say this one more time to you. I don't want you to call me sweetheart in this moment, and I want you to shut up. And I said, well, what would you, what would you like me to do? She said, I would like you to sit in the chair and watch the baseball game and not bother me right now. Well, inevitably, inevitably, labor pains come. So the coming of Jesus is going to be sudden. It's going to be inevitable. It's going to be unavoidable. That's the way that it's going to be for non-Christian people. And so in verse 3, he brings this idea out. The labor pains are unavoidable. People think, well, he's never going to come back. He's been, he promised when he was here he's going to come back. That is, if Jesus is true, he claims to be, why hasn't he come back? Where is he? Well, God's getting things together. God's getting things right. Will it be tomorrow? I have no idea. Will it be five years from now? I don't have any idea. But I know that the Bible says that his coming, his coming will be sudden and it will be inevitable. Well, in verses 4 through 10, he wants to bring out the idea that, that believers don't need to be afraid of that day. Believers do not need to fear the second coming of Jesus. And as we read through these verses from verse 4 to 10, what you'll see is that there are basically two kinds of people that are going to be discussed. There are those who are going to be ready and those who are not going to be ready. There are going to be those who are in the light. And there are going to be those who are in the darkness. There are going to be those who are spiritually awake, and there are going to be those who are spiritually asleep. There are going to be those who are self-controlled and those who are not self-controlled. So look with me in verses 4 and 5. He says, but you, brethren… Notice he uses an adversative particle. Those little words can be be so important. He's changing his focus. To the lost people, he comes like a thief in the night, like a woman in labor pains, but you… But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So notice he's describing the Christian person. He says the Christian person is a son or daughter of God. They are in the light. They are children of the day. They are not children of the night. They are not children of the darkness. So he's drawing a contrast in the way that people will be, some will be caught completely unawares when Jesus returns. The others don't know the day. They don't know the hour. They don't know the season, but they're not going to be unprepared when Jesus returns. Look with me in verse 7. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. In fact, go back with me to verse 6. Look, uh, look at verse 6 with me, the word, so then. If the word, the little adversative particle, but, is important, so are the two little words, so then. He, he's drawing an inference. He's drawing a conclusion. He's, he wants to make an additional point. So he says in verse 6, so then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Now, last week, we looked at the idea that when Paul was talking about those who have died in Christ… He described them as being asleep. He's using the imagery differently in this passage. In the passage last week, those who were asleep in Jesus were those who died as Christian people. And although their bodies decomposed in the ground, they were present with the Lord. Their spirit was alive with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be in the Lord's presence. And he used that to encourage and give hope to the Christian people in Thessalonica. Now he's changing his imagery. Those who are asleep or those who are sleeping right here are those who are outside of Christ. So then, let us not sleep as others do. That is, lost people are spiritually asleep. He said, instead, let us be alert and sober. Let us be watchful and ready and prepared when Jesus comes. And when he uses the word sober here, he means self-controlled. Let us live self-controlled lives. People with drinking problems lack self-control. But there are a lot of areas of life where a person can lack self-control. So he's saying, let's be spiritually alert and let us be people who are self-controlled controlled. And then he goes on, as I read just a moment ago in verse 7, for those who sleep, those who don't know Jesus, do their sleeping at night. A lot of bad things happen at night. That is, under the cover of darkness, there are things that happen that would not take place in the day because people know that those activities are illegal or immoral or frowned upon. So he says, for those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. He's using the night as an image of of being unconverted, of not being a Christian. He's contrasting those who are spiritually awake with those who are spiritually asleep. He's using a contrast, those who are spiritually of the day and those who are spiritually of the night, those who are born again by the Spirit of God and those who are not born again by the Spirit of God. And so he says in verse 8, notice the little particle again, but, the adversative particle, but since we are of the day, since we're born again by the Spirit of God, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, since we are God's people, since we are of the day, let us be sober, let us be self-controlled. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So he's saying, let's be warriors for Christ. Let's be soldiers for Christ. So he uses the imagery of warfare. Now he'll use the imagery of warfare in different ways, in different passages. It's it's a little bit fluid. He does it over in Ephesians 6 as well. But here he's saying, let us put on the breastplate of faith and love. And by that he's meaning we've been saved by faith, let us live by faith. We've been saved by faith, let's walk by faith. We've been saved by faith, let's, let's make choices that reflect that salvation by faith. Let us be people that live by faith and love. And when we live by faith and love, faith in Jesus Christ, we live walking out that faith. We people that love God with all of our our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbor as ourselves, we are soldiers ready for spiritual battle. We don't take up physical weapons, uh, but we're doing spiritual warfare for the kingdom. We're praying for lost people. We're sharing the gospel with lost people. We're discipling young believers to help them be solidified in their faith. We're not the kind of people that have decided, well, I'll just, I'll just retire spiritually. I'll, I'll come to church and occasionally I'll read my Bible and uh, I, will, I will do those things. But I'm not going to be a warrior anymore. I'm too old to be a warrior. I'm too tired to be a warrior. But if you are a believer in Christ, you're a warrior from the day you are saved until the day that you die. So he says, put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, which is the hope of Salvation. The world's hope is in this world. The world hopes in the things of this world. The world hopes that the stock market goes up. The world hopes that their political candidates are going to win. The world hopes that things are going to unfold for them in a favorable way. But our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is focused on the salvation that we've received in Christ. So he says in verse 9 to bring them even greater comfort. For God has not destined us for wrath. That is, these are brand new Christians. They don't know a lot about the gospel. They're being informed as they read this letter. They're being discipled as they read this letter. And he says, I want you to know that God hasn't chosen you to be his children because he wants to judge you. Wrath is for those whom God judges, not for God's children. God disciplines us for our good. God disciplines us as a good father, but God's wrath does not fall on his children because his wrath fell on his son in their place. And so we've not been saved for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There he says it clearly and definitively. We believe there's only one way that a person can be made right with God. We don't believe that there are many ways that all lead to the same place. We believe that salvation is in Christ alone. We believe in the exclusivity of the gospel. We believe in the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, that we receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There aren't many pathways to God. There's a single door. There's a single gate. The road is narrow. The invitation is broad, but the road is narrow. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, in order to drive the point home, he says in verse ten, "This is the Jesus, not any Jesus, uh, not the Jesus who uh, is a moralist, not the Jesus who is the simply an exorcist, but the Jesus Christ who's God incarnate, who died for uh, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together." With him. Now he changes his imagery again here in this verse, and he goes back to what we talked about last week in verses 13 through 18. So when he says, Who died for us, so that whether we are awake, alive when Jesus returns, or asleep, our bodies have decomposed in the ground, but we are in God's presence when Jesus returns, we will live together with him. That's the hope of our salvation. That we are with our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for us and the one through whom we have received salvation. Therefore, he says, encourage one another, build up one another, just as also you are doing. Notice the one another. He says, encourage one another and build up one another. In, In the coronavirus age, it's me against the world it's me being very reclusive uh, but there are many ways to love one another encourage one another build up one another and still be safe you can do it by the phone you can do it by zoom you can make a, you can write cards you can make phone calls there are many ways but notice he says encourage one another and build up one another he he doesn't want us sinking back and hiding from our christian responsibility because we live in an age of pandemic he wants us to encourage and build up. Now, some, because of health considerations, have got to be very, very cautious, very, very careful. And we all should be careful. But you don't get coronavirus over the telephone or over the Internet or writing a note to someone. We can build one another up, but it means i got to quit thinking about myself and i got to think about my responsibility. I've been called to be an encourager and a builder, an edifier. I've got to get my focus off of myself, and I've got to put my focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and on his people. Uh, so as we, as we bring the passage to a close, I want to come back to this idea again that there are two groups of people in the passage today, and they could not be any more different. They may look on the outside very much alike. But one is awake and the other's asleep. One is ready when Jesus returns and the other will not be prepared. One lives life with an eye toward eternity and the other lives life simply for today. One's hope is in a coming king and the other's hope is in medical science and technology and the political realm or we might just say one's hope is in this world and the other's in the world to come ones going to be ready not because they know when jesus will come but because they put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet which is the hope of the hope of salvation One's going to be completely caught off guard because they're going to be spiritually asleep. They're going to be confident that tomorrow is going to be secure because they're calling out safety and peace. But the others aren't pessimist. No matter how dark the world gets, there's still a God sitting on heaven's throne. His son is seated at his right hand. He's preparing for himself a people... And so they're seeking after holiness. They're pursuing Christ. They're loving the church. There's only two kinds of people here today those who will be ready and those who will not. The question is which are you? Where's your hope? Where's your confidence? Where's your focus? If your focus is in the mirror, you may very well be a believer, but you've missed, you have a misplaced focus. Our focus should be toward heaven. And when your focus is turned toward heaven, it's turned toward other people. We read the Bible, and we're confused about the second coming sometimes. We read the book of Revelation, and we admit we can't make heads or tails out of it. But the truth of the matter is, God wants a prepared people. We'll never know the day or the hour, but we must be prepared. I'm going to ask you to stand and let me lead us in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that the instruction that the Apostle Paul has given to us this morning is not very complex, it's really pretty straightforward. There are only two kinds of people in this world, those who will be ready when Jesus returns and those who will not be ready. One group calls out peace and safety because the circumstances of life are favorable toward them. And the others have put on the the breastplate of faith and love and they encourage one another and build up one another. Help us to be faithful, found faithful, that whether we are asleep or whether we are awake when you come. We will be prepared. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.